Hi, welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives, where today we will be talking about the origins of Los Angeles Water Wars. Stay tuned. How's it going, Riley? What you uh, what you been up to lately? Mad, I'm good. Yeah, I um, I don't know why. It's just these weeks are flying by. You know, when we're talking about these like intros. I have had stuff written down, but it's like, gosh, I just don't. It's a weird time of the year. I don't know. Maybe no, that's what it is. Right. Or I, I started a new position, so like, you know, I'm getting the swing of that. But um, mm. one thing I did do is I went fishing, and I didn't Ooh. catch anything. <laughs> Got skunked. <laughs> I caught That's one little rainbow. And I was like, man. I even had like okay. a, a, a day off, and I was like, I'm going to go fishing. Like, I really want to just lay into something. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Just not a, not, not doing well, but that's, you know, it is what it is. It was mm. beautiful, though. So it was like oh, one of okay. those like days where you, it's just, you know, it's like, yeah, just that, whatever. Didn't okay. want to get too meta on yeah. you but you know that just <laughs> connection and you're like like this is this is great it's just great to get out and um okay yeah right so yeah what about you dude um nothing really honestly <laughs> yeah it's it's just like you said it's that time of year um yeah. where things are just flying by um the lab is really busy so i just i, I haven't really been out and doing anything i yeah. will say i have a jalapeno plant in my backyard that is thriving it is almost over my head, so I made really? some jalapeno poppers. They are fantastic. Jalapeno poppers. And, yeah, they're fantastic. And I got some chili going right now. So beyond that, Ooh. nothing really new. I so. have beef stew going. Ooh, dude, I it smells like, fantastic right now. Uh, same, that's hilarious. Change of weather. Yeah. I was like, I need something, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, so mm-hmm. that's hilarious. But um, Not quite soup, got... but like just something mm-hmm. to kind of warm me up a little bit. You got jalapenos growing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're there, doing I really good. Roma tomatoes. I remember that. And uh, little uh, okay. plastic toads. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Let's see. I tried bell peppers last year. And they got torn to shreds. So I said, forget it. We'll try jalapenos. So I got jalapenos, basil, and some rosemary in the back. How's and they are the... all doing fantastic. So Matt and I lived in the same apartment complex way back when. How's the ducks? The ducks, they haven't been around yet this year. What? Are you serious? They're yeah. gone? The quack pack? The, the, <laughs> yeah, the quack pack hasn't been around. What? I don't know where they went. Dude, maybe they're we in somebody it... else's backyard. We named the head one the white and um, black speckled one. <laughs> Matt's laughing. We named it Shalissa. <laughs> That's Shalissa. <laughs> I can't believe it. I mean, I just, I haven't seen them around. I've seen. <laughs> I've seen like you know a mating pair of Aww. like a hen and a mallard of a, a, a hen and a drake, but I haven't seen like there there was usually like a pack of four drakes that would just kind of wander the neighborhood. Yeah. No, um, but no, they haven't been around. So very specific conversation we're having, everyone. Hopefully you enjoy it. Yeah, super uh, relatable. I'm sure the listeners yeah. are loving this. Did... All right, everybody, we're back, and um, thank you for listening in to Freshwater Perspectives. Uh, Matt and I, we switch off week to week normally, and it, one of us will lead um, 
discussion and bring a topic and the other one not necessarily is going to know what the other one's going to talk about so i did not hear about it until matt did his little introduction today so uh excited to listen and learn with all of you and matt take it away yeah thanks riley so like the intro said we're gonna be talking about the origins of los angeles water wars some people just call it the california water wars because it incorporates such a large part of the state um Looking back, the story is pretty straightforward, I'll admit, in that L.A., if you want, like, the kind of Cliff Notes version, L.A. essentially went 240 miles north of the city, re-diverted an entire river just to act as a water supply for the city of Los Angeles. Um, so if you want to get into ethics, it's pretty straightforward. But my challenge was to give you a more sympathetic character to follow. Um, and if you need another reason to stick around, here are some kind of highlights from the story that we'll be talking about. So it involves an Irish immigrant and a rags to riches story, 240 mile long aqueduct president, uh, naming a desert, a national forest, some shady land grabs, a socialist utopia, outright terrorism, and a bit of yellow journalism. Okay. So anything in there Holy catch your moly. yeah? Anything in there catch your attention, Riley? You went down a rabbit hole. Um, I did. Yellow journalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For that? those of you who don't, I've never heard, yeah. so for those of you who don't know the term yellow journalism, um, it essentially just means that you're going beyond the facts, right? So a great example of yellow journalism was so there's like a, there was a pretty uh, famous feud between William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer who were both newspaper moguls mm -hmm. and right around, right before the Spanish American war, um, you know, I, for those of you who don't know how the Spanish American war started, there was a U.S. battleship that mysteriously exploded off the coast of Cuba. There were no facts presented as to how it exploded. I think the talk afterward was that it was just like a gas leak or, or some sort of malfunction, but Pulitzer and Hearst both said that it was outright act of war by, Spain. So they were just acting on pure conjecture for their own purposes, just to sell copies. So that's essentially yellow, yellow journalism is you're going beyond the facts just to sell copies to kind of like draw in readers. Does that make sense? <laughs> so a lot of stuff that I see on Facebook. Sounds, yeah, you go. yeah, that's better. That's better. Like there's yes. that, yeah, that fine. Most line of what you see a, on Facebook, as a matter of fact, um, yeah. opinion versus um, facts changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are you I guess did I did I do a good job in catching your attention already? You have me um interested for sure. Yeah. Cool. Because I, I, so, I definitely haven't heard much about the Los Angeles cool. Water War. Except awesome. for That's the great. aqueduct, right? Yeah. 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 So in case you're wondering as to how I fell down this rabbit hole, as I will say I, I fell into it. I was not looking to yes. learn about Los Angeles Water Wars. I was doing separate research for an article I wanted to write. Uh, as to the water quantity issue that is going on in the west um, western part of the U.S. right now. And one of them alluded to some issues like that are resurfacing going back to the start of the California Water Wars. And I was like, oh, how did the California Water War started? And here we are. So, right. yeah. Love it. <laughs> so there are kind of two main characters we're going to follow along. Our kind of leading man for this entire story, we're going to be following him pretty much the entire way. Is William Mulholland. He is an Irish immigrant, worked his way up from digging ditches to the superintendent of the Los Angeles Water District. He was a self-taught civil engineer, did not have any formal training. Um, 
and yet, honestly, just a pretty crazy rags to riches story. Um, I, I've the, heard of Mulholland before. Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. I did not before this. So yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, the other gentleman is Frederick Eaton. He is another civil engineer. He was the Los Angeles Water Company superintendent prior to Mulholland. And he also served a brief stint as the mayor of Los Angeles. And these two men had a what started out as a really great friendship and relationship quickly kind of soured thereon. And we'll kind of get into how all that happened. So things really start in the late 18 and late 1876 when the transcontinental railroad reached Los Angeles. At this point, Los Angeles was not called Los Angeles. It was called El Pueblo de la Reina de Los Angeles. Did you know that? No, I had no yeah. idea had a much longer name because it was a it was a spanish missionary originally okay okay yeah and then yeah. america won all that land in the mexican-american war um okay. but we don't, we're not talking about that today <laughs> um so once the transcontinental railroad reaches los angeles this is when things really start to pick up for the city the railroad brings new people new business and of course new opportunities so this is where our leading man comes in william mulholland so like I said earlier, Mulholland was an Irish immigrant who left his home country at the age of 14, spent several years working various odd jobs for merchant and military ships, including working on a Great Lakes freighter in the summer of 1874. He eventually arrived in Los Angeles in late 1877. He immediately fell in love with the city the second he stepped off the train. He said that the jobs were generously paid, the scenery was spectacular, um, in hindsight, he was being incredibly generous to the city of about 8,000 inhabitants. Most historians um, definitely say this was a city down on its luck, like full of like thieves, gamblers. This was like not a place that people really wanted to go to. Uh, but for some reason, Mulholland absolutely loved it. Um, and then also while he while he kind of first jumped off the train, he took notice of LA's water source. He said that the uh, LA River was a peaceful little stream in reality the la river was an intermittent stream at best running dry during the summer and flooding whenever it rained so it was notoriously an unreliable water source so you can kind of see where that can start to to kind of go forward from there hmm. um so soon after arriving in los angeles and despite his glowing endorsement mulholland found employment hard to come by and briefly uh, went away to pan for gold in the colorado river in arizona after this brief and unsuccessful prospecting venture, Mulholland returned to Los Angeles, getting a job with the Los Angeles Water Company. Uh, we'll get into this a little bit in the water company's complicated relationship with the city. All you really, really need to know at this point is that the company was a private entity from the city. So the city did not own its own water rights at this point. It was leased out by the Los Angeles Water Company. Okay. So Mulholland's job was to dig and maintain canals. They were called zanhats, and these canals carried water from the LA River through the city. And his official title was a zanhero. <laughs> Say it again. Zanhero. A zanhero. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yeah. I want a cool name like that. Mana. <laughs> um. So again, so yeah. So his job was to just kind of maintain these these ditches and canals that were really just carrying water throughout the city. Uh, for context, citizens often bathed, washed their clothes, and disposed of waste in these aquifers. Written reports about the canal system called the water smelly, disgusting, nauseating. 
the LA Times frequent, frequently reported that fish were coming out of people's taps as well. Um, so, yeah, not only are we dealing with the potential water quantity issue, we're dealing with some pretty severe water quality issues. Um, but, yeah, so moving forward, so during the um, 1880s, like I said, LA's uh, water was owned and maintained by the Los Angeles Water Company, private company leased the city's water rights for 30 years, starting in 1868. Uh, this relationship between LA and the water company was shady at best. One of the company's first presidents simultaneously served on the city of Los Angeles's water committee. The water committee's job was to set the rates and the prices that the private company was then allowed to charge the citizens. <laughs> so you can understand how that can get a little you know whatever Checks um, a little shady yeah <laughs> some interesting business practices there yep. um furthermore whenever residents complained about the quality of their water no solution or explanations were given the company also had some interesting policies such as charging extra for households with a bathtub and refused to subsidize water at the fire department used um so yeah so we're at, at this point kind of we're, we're reaching the end of the lease at this point um, it's more or less a foregone conclusion that the city will not renew its lease. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely some interesting practices going on by the by the company. There wasn't really any real effort put forth to improving the system. It was more so just to kind of maintain and grow it. Just their kind of practice, their policy at this point was just to make sure people got water. They didn't really care how much or at what quality the water was when it actually reached the uh, reached the person's tap. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. So at least, right? Like, mm -hmm. and the least, like, who's who's gonna take over that infrastructure? Right? We'll get to there. No. Okay, we'll get there. That's just yeah. so we'll, we'll odd to me yeah. like that. Like, you feel like I mean, mm -hmm. definitely like a monopoly type of situation because yeah. it's like, ha, who can take over that or like who yeah. owns we'll, infrastructure? Anyways, yeah, we'll get there. Don't worry. My brain's gone. Um, yeah. So during this time, Mulholland has worked his way up uh, from the ditch digger, from a zanjero, uh, all up to being a foreman. There's no fancy name for, for a foreman, unfortunately. Uh, so he was now a foreman for the Los Angeles Water Company. New title actually didn't come uh, with any really new responsibilities. Uh, he continued to maintain and clean the city's aqueducts. So I don't know why. Maybe they just actually, maybe they just got rid of the name zanjero because it was a, I mean, this isn't a very what's the word accepting part of America's uh, history. So maybe they just didn't like the name and they're like, you're not a Zanjero, you're a foreman now. Hmm. Um, that's my, that's my speculation. Um, but anyway, I digress. So despite his long hours and backbreaking work at nights, uh, Mulholland would frequent the local library where he would check out civil engineering and urban planning textbooks on a regular basis. So, yeah, that means Mulholland was a self-taught civil engineer, spending no formal time at uh, any university. And then eventually Mulholland was able to work on the Buena Vista Reservoir Project. Following the completion of that project, the water company's superintendent at the time, Frederick Eaton, left and handpicked Mulholland to succeed him in 1886. As a reminder, Mulholland only arrived in Los Angeles in 1877. So in a span of nine years, he went from unemployed, uh, panning gold out of the Colorado River in Arizona, to now being the superintendent of the Los Angeles Water Company. I like it. Yeah, I like it. this guy's like a that real limited civil engineering um, education. Is, no, uh... really, really no. I don't think you can call it an education. <laughs> I feel like that's a 
red flag. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, don't worry. Just sit down. <laughs> Just don't worry. Right, we'll right. get there. We'll get to all this. Um, but honestly, um, I wish I could do a better job painting the picture of the kind of person Mulholland was. Um, a lot of the biographies um, remark him as incredibly hardworking. He was a workaholic through and through. Um, he was also quite witty. We'll get to some of his his quote worthy remarks he gets to. Um, you know, so he was kind of smarky. Some people might call him a smart ass. Um Man. yeah. Uh, I know, I'm sorry, uh, for our PG audience. Um uh, but yeah, so he was very confident in himself and his own skills. Um he was definitely a man that was gonna bet on himself. So once right. Mulholland takes the reins as superintendent of the Los Angeles Water Company things change really fast. So Mulholland envisioned Los Angeles growing quickly and he immediately set out to modernize the water grid and make the system much more efficient. So by the late 1890s, Mulholland began installing a series of water meters to measure the amount of water each home consumed and therefore adjusting the bill accordingly. Makes sense, right? So the Did, exact uh, same system we have now, pretty much. Would, was he the first to do that or is that like not common practice then in that time? That's a good question. Yeah. So maybe common practice. So I'm positive it was happening in the larger cities, especially mm -hmm. on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is the first time it's happening in LA. Okay. Um, Interesting. Um, what, what What was the date again? You said that was in the 1890s. So I believe this was the early 1890s. I think around 1893. Wow. When he started to to roll these out. Meters in 1893. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. And these were, according to a lot of the biographies, um, so these were not ordered. This was doing a lot of his own research. He actually designed these meters himself, which is quite impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they so these meters, of course, uh, they, they adjusted the bill accordingly. Um, unfortunately, though, by this time, the city had already been in the midst of a years-long drought that left the city riddled with dust storms, and despite all of Mahan's efforts, the citizens were still outraged over the quality of the water. At this point, they weren't really worried about how much water they were getting. They were more frustrated that the water they were getting was perhaps unpotable. You know, there were still reports of fish uh, being found at, in people's bathtubs, for example. Yeah. Uh, imagine seeing that nowadays. <laughs> yeah, like a top that's... minnow. You just see like a top minnow swimming around, and or a gambusio swimming around in your, yeah. in your bathtub. I know there's always um, like uh, like snakes, but I think that's a different mm -hmm. plumbing portion. Yeah, but... <laughs> no, yeah. But despite all of these complaints over the quality of their water, it is important to note that Mulholland's efforts allowed the city's population to double from fifty thousand in 1890 to nearly a hundred thousand by 1900. Mulholland was correct that the city would continue to grow, but the city's water supply continued to fringe on the intermittent Los Angeles River. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So, again, self-taught engineer um, allows the city, and this is still no outside sources of water. This is all just functioning off of the LA River. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he tried to enact he tried to kind of install some wells so that they could store some water but mm -hmm. for some reason the geology of the area um that was part of the reason that the la river was so intermittent is that the geology of the of the area did not allow for groundwater storage it it really it dispersed rather quickly um so that was huh. kind of a failed attempt there why so 
question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw this in yours, but like, why, why LA? You know what I'm saying? Like, why that area? Why were people sold on that spot? I can't tell. I don't know. Um, it's, it's by the ocean. Well, I don't know where true LA was. I'm looking at a map right now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Because <laughs> it's like, it's close, right? But like, I don't know mm-hmm. if like where we're original LA because there's so many suburbs. But so huh. if I may add a little bit of conjecture from the reports I did read. So this is where, this isn't yellow journalism, I will say, but this is where the newspaper, so newspapers play a big role in a lot of the, uh, the LA water wars. And they also played a big role in getting people to LA. Yeah. I know for a fact that I don't think it was the LA times, but there was one newspaper that would send copies East. So of course they're an, they're a newspaper outlet, right? So they yeah. benefit when there's more people in the city. So they benefit from attracting people to the city. Okay. So they would intentionally send copies east during winter saying, why not come to a place that's always sunny and there's never winter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of a, a low, kind of a, an early tourism board, if you will. Sure. Um, so I think that was part of it. And if you can imagine uprooting your, if you were one of those people to uproot all the way from, say, New York City, whether you were an immigrant. Or, and I think that was a lot of it, too, is a lot of them were, were immigrant workers. Okay. Um, so these weren't people that were incredibly well-to-do saying like, ah, there's all these opportunities for, for me here in LA. I think it was more people that were down on their luck that just happened to kind of end up in LA. Um, but I think part of the doubling from 1890 to 1900 was part of that kind of conscious effort to go, we're going to get as many people in here as we can so we can make a lot of money. Uh, we don't really care what happens to them once they actually get here. <laughs> I think that was the mindset of a lot of instances. Okay. Um, not just LA, just in this time, of course, right? Okay, yeah. So jumping back in, um, in 1898, the Los Angeles Water Company's 30-year lease with the city had ended, and obviously the city was not looking to re-up with the company. And so because of that, an agreement would need to be reached for the city to purchase the water company's existing infrastructure. So hopefully that answers your question with the lease. So I guess the idea was that since... So the company was leasing the city's water rights but all the infrastructure that the water company maintained was theirs. So the city, in order so they got their water back, but in order to distribute that water, they needed to then purchase all the infrastructure that the water company owned to actually service all the water. Um, okay. hmm. Yeah. So, and of course, there was a disagreement over the worth of this infrastructure. Eventually, the city paid about $2 million, which in today's money is about $71 million. And the water company was in city control by 1902. Um, the mayor that helped facilitate negotiations was our man Fred Eaton, who was the LA Water Company superintendent. So another little connection there with Eaton um, okay. is that he helped facilitate um, this kind of transition period. Um, as a little aside, I thought there's a couple of these little asides that I'll have here just because doing a bunch of reading and there's so many of these like little anecdotes and stuff. Um, I think it's really cool. But this also just speaks to um, speaks to Mulholland. So there is an anecdote where the city was asking Mulholland for a complete map and inventory of the city's pipes, valves, and hydrants. So they wanted the dimensions of all the pipes, length of all the pipes, locations of all the pipes, of all the valves, and all of the um, hydrants. Mulholland, so rather than go to his office 
and get a map or actually do a census, you know, essentially, so do test digs of where all the sites were. Uh, he told the city official to grab one of their maps and apparently drew a 100% accurate map of every inch of pipe and the locations of valves and hydrants. Um, the city then went in and tested certain sites and concluded he was correct. <laughs> Just by <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it was photographic memory again. This is the man that would is betting on himself a lot of quips. Yeah. Um, That's fun. so. Yeah. So once the water company was no longer private, Mulholland began releasing reports on the city's water usage, average bill cost, etc. He noticed that the meters helped reduce the average water usage from about 300 gallons per person per day to 200 gallons per person per day. Um, for context, that 300 gallons per person per day was well above the national average. That 200 gallons per person per day was pretty close to the national average. Um, however, despite this improvement, Mulholland did warn in many of his reports that the LA River was barely carrying half of its expected amount of water into the city and that LA was still going to need more water. So the biggest issue that Mulholland was facing at this point was actually, believe it or not, convincing the citizens of Los Angeles that water quantity was actually a bigger issue than water quality. That may sound silly, um, considering, you know, all everything I said about the fact that there's a drought going on. Um, the LA river is notoriously intermittent. Um, but it is probably fair to say that water quality, if you can't maintain the water you have now, what's to say you're going to maintain the water any more water you get right mm -hmm. so newspapers continually ran stories calling water shortage a hoax and simply told the city to build more dams mulholland would continue to press that reservoirs can't hold water that doesn't reach them um, it wasn't until 1904 when cattle herds and ranches north of the city began to starve due to a lack of green pastures and churches eventually told citizens to pray for rain that the citizens actually started to be more receptive towards Mulholland. Okay. So he's finally kind of starting to get his way here. Yeah. Um, shifting gears to our other uh, protagonist here. So despite the city skepticism, Fred Eaton, now former LA mayor after a two year term, um, now, now enjoying retirement, uh, was exploring the possibilities of tapping other water sources for LA use. Um, this brings us to Inyo County, California, and the Owens River. Uh, Eaton had frequented uh, Inyo County in his younger years with his father. The two actually contemplated diverting part of the in of the Owens River to Pasadena uh, for irrigating their vineyard. Uh, but now Eaton thought the Owens River would be an ideal water source for LA. Uh, again, for context, Inyo County was about 240 miles north of LA. <laughs> so, yeah. That's quite a distance. Oh, my Lord. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, just a little quick little um, insight on the Owens River. So, the Owens River was fed by the Sierra Nevada Mountain snowmelt and flowed year-round at about 400 cubic feet per second, fueling lush pasture lands for ranchers of Inyo County. The best part about the Owens River its source was about 4,000 feet above sea level, meaning that it could be diverted all the way down to Los Angeles without any power, as it would be flowing downhill. Just or mm -hmm. gravity, yeah. Yep, just, gra just gravity doing its thing. Um, but of course, the catch is big, bold underline there. Inyo County was 240 miles north of Los Angeles. Despite this, 
Eaton was certain that his idea would work, so decided to pitch his idea to Mulholland. Mulholland thought it was too good to be true and wanted to see for himself. After the two men made the arduous trip up to the Owens River Valley, Mulholland was convinced of Eaton's plan and marveled by its simplicity. By Mulholland's projections, the Owens River could support a population of about 2 million people, plenty enough for LA's current population and more. The cherry on top for Mulholland was that the Owens River fed into the Owens Lake, a massive inland alkaline lake whose salt water levels rendered the water useless. In his eyes, the water was being wasted anyway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. goes so in, in his yeah. idea, it was like, well, no one's using the water anyway. It's just going into a, a salt lake. So yeah. we might as well use it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so although the engineering logistics were quite simple in theory, the acquisition logistics weren't at all. The residents of Inyo County would be less than pleased to see their river be diverted and would be unlikely to sell to faraway big city. Eaton and Mulholland would need to get creative. So with the proposal agreed in principle, Eaton and Mulholland had their jobs. Mulholland would begin designing a 200-mile-long steel aqueduct, and Eaton would acquire the necessary properties. In quick succession, Eaton went door-to-door -door offering well over market value for properties within the aqueduct's intended footprint, and the city of L.A. would later reimburse him. The plan went remarkably smoothly, as Eaton required every single property needed to complete the project. Eaton's pitch involved saying he wished to retire and start a cattle farm and was willing to pay $10 or $350 in today's money per acre. All the ranchers made a ridiculous profit. I will say that last part, um, that they all made a ridiculous profit, does vary depending on what book you read and what sources you read as well. Some historians say that according to what... I'm trying to think of how they worded it. So I think they worded it on if so, sorry. So I believe one of them worded it as just flat out based on the national average or what the property was actually worth. Um, they got way undercut. Mm -hmm. The other said that if you only accounted for what the land was worth, not necessarily the water rights, then they made money hand over fist either okay. way. Um, the farmers made a profit um, and all the ones that needed to agree to the deal did agree to the deal. Um, now the rationale behind moving so quickly to acquire the needed parcels was twofold. So one LA didn't want the neighbors to start talking and raise their prices, of course. And in an interesting little twist, the U.S.'s Federal Reclamation Service surveyed the, surveyed the valley in around 1903 to potentially use the area as an experimental site. The Reclamation Service could enact eminent domain over private homes, but not over public land over owned by Los Angeles. To go a layer deeper, one of the Reclamation Service's contracted surveyors was also contracted with the city of Los Angeles and just happened to be good friends with Fred Eaton. Fred Eaton. Mm-hmm. Got a good so network. He may or may not have gotten a little tip that the Reclamation Service uh, was sniffing around. Have you heard of the Reclamation Service before? Like the Bureau of Reclamation currently? Or, or is this I think a different... at the time it was called the Federal Reclamation Service. I, I So yes, I have heard. I guess I oh, haven't okay. delved too much in their, oh, okay. their day-to-days. Yeah. <laughs> but I have heard, yeah. Okay, well, I, I had not heard of it uh, prior to this. And apparently, okay. so their, their kind of goal was to go into... Like their idea was to turn like 
less diverse, underutilized areas into kind of more widely used areas. So essentially turning more arid regions into more lush regions. So yes. you could then turn a profit on, say, farming or agriculture. So that was the reclamation services yeah. um, kind of purpose, at least at this point in time. I don't know what they're up to nowadays. Um, yeah. But that yeah, so they wanted to use. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 yeah. Let's leave it at that because I'm not okay. 100% either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, th so they wanted to, to use the area as an experimental site, mainly because it was kind of just out of the way. And there was only about 5,000 citizens, I believe, in Inyo County at this point. So they felt like they weren't displacing that many people. Mm -hmm. um, so during the property acquisitions in 1905, the city of Los Angeles was continu continuing to go through a drought, which forced Mulholland to take drastic steps like shutting off irrigation to water crop fields, which then prompted the farmers to sue the city of Los Angeles. Public perception didn't improve when it was discovered that the pipes leading from the new pumping station beneath the Buena Vista Reservoir weren't suited for the high pressure news the new station was dishing out, which led to a week-long water leak, spilling millions of gallons of water into the sewer lines and eventually out to the Pacific Ocean. For what it's worth, most historians believe that Mulholland was indeed overselling the city's water needs in order to justify Eaton's, ra Eaton's rapid dealings. Okay. So... I think it's also worth mentioning um, before we even kind of get ahead, just that you, you mentioned there were some red flags potentially to Eaton or to Mulholland being self-taught. Um, the way that he ran the water company is that everything was on him. He was like, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of everything. So he designed almost everything. He oversaw all the building. Um, so if you're asking, well, maybe, maybe the pump wasn't Mulholland's fault. No one said it was his fault, um, but he was in charge. How about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so in the in in late eighteen, no, I'm sorry, in late nineteen oh five, Fred Eaton informed the city of Los Angeles that the last of the necessary parcels had been purchased. However, Eaton was not willing to give over every property without making a profit, of course, and held out the most valuable piece where he knew Mulholland intended to construct a massive reservoir at the start of the aqueduct. Of course, Mulholland was outraged, swore to never allow Eaton to make a profit on that property, saying that he was happy to wait until the man died and then purchase the parcel three days afterward. Uh, the two men's relationship was sour from then on, Mulholland was willing to completely change his design than buy the last piece of property at a markup. For him, it was much more about principle. So he was happy to help out a friend okay. if it was agreed to beforehand, but now he just felt like uh, Eaton was, was his greed got the best of him. Okay. Um, so the city of LA's land grab was well reported by the newspapers. So this is where the newspapers kind of start to kick in a little bit more. Um, so again, this is this this land grab was happening in 1905. Newspapers are all around it. Word eventually traveled up to Inyo County. Once the Inyo County ranchers caught wind of Eaton's dealings, they ran him out of town in the middle of the night, chasing him and his wife out nearly at gunpoint. A posse Ooh. chased him out of town. Huh. Uh, it is believed that the remaining that the remaining ranchers were enraged that one they weren't able to sell their land at ridiculous prices. Uh, and two, their pastures would soon be turned to desert once the once LA diverts the Owens River. So justifiably upset. Okay. And I think what's great about maybe not great, 
but really brings uh, the kind of meaning to the word water wars is that there is actual violence that eventually stirs out of this. And we'll get to that later. Um, so now that the city of Los Angeles had most of its needed parcels, there was only one remaining issue. The city required a right of way from the federal government to build the aqueduct through federal land. Inyo County and Los Angeles representatives quickly met with President Roosevelt to try and sway his decision. In the end, he decided he sided with the city of L.A. due to their greater size and future economic process, i.e. the many outweigh the few. To facilitate the aqueduct's construction, Roosevelt ordered the creation of the Inyo National Forest, which would ease the city's right-of-way claims. The forest itself was actually a desert. Now that the work could start, Mulholland's estimations claim the project would be completed with a budget of about $24 million or $800 million in today's money. Ever heard of uh, Inyo National Forest, Riley? I don't think I have, no. No, I definitely hadn't, and I think yeah. that's hilarious. Does, uh, the, does the name I, hold still? Uh, I should have looked that up, but I will right now. That's okay. Let's see. So this is all Inyo when National. Roosevelt is around too. Yes, oh, Inyo Roosevelt's National Forest. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's still a thing, and according to the the pictures now, it looks actually pretty nice. But okay. according to historical records, it was 100% in the desert at the time. Um, but again, maybe that's just trying to paint Mulholland and in, in this in a negative light, which I don't think it needs to be painted in a negative light, but okay. neither here nor there. Okay. So construction on the aqueduct began in 1908 with Mulholland named as the chief engineer, of course, despite being self-taught with no formal engineering background. Uh, the project would require 3,900 workers, 233 miles of open-air canals, 28 miles of underground tunnels. The complexity of the project was perhaps low, but the sheer scale was unparalleled for the time. But Mulholland's confidence was unwavering. Quote, a man who has made one brick can make two bricks, he said. During its construction, newspapers up and down the state of California pointed to the impossibility of the endeavor, among other things. One key issue continually mentioned by William Randolph Hearst's Los Angeles Examiner was the supposed land syndicate that just so happened to have combined their funds to purchase a large ranch that sits up against where the aqueduct would eventually meet the Los Angeles River four years prior to the project's start. This currently barren flatland would presumably soon be lush and profitable pasture land once the aqueduct was completed and papers cried foul play and insider dealings. The examiner would continue to call the aqueduct project a waste of taxpayer money. Hearst would eventually be intimidated by LA officials to drop the story from its headlines. While touring LA for a rally to support the construction, Mulholland was quoted saying, quote, the dead have no need for water. <laughs> so you can already kind of start to see the battle yep. um, that's really developing here. And it's really, I think that once Mulholland decided that this, that he wanted this to happen, it was going to happen one way or another. And I think this just really kind of echoes the kind of man he was where he kind of had one setting and it was go. He always bet on himself and he just, I think he liked the sheer scale of the project. I think he liked people saying it was impossible because he was like, all right, well, just watch me. We'll see what happens. Okay. Um, in reality, this truly was a logistical nightmare. Every piece of the construction supply needed to be brought in as there weren't even trees to source for timber nearby. 
The desert temperatures fluctuated from above 100 to below freezing. On top of this, communication lines and power would need to be built along the way. Workers would need to be fed and sheltered, along with the animals like mules as well. Mulholland attempted to reduce his workforce by commissioning 28 Benjamin Holt Machine Company tractors, later called Caterpillars. If you've if you've uh, heard of those before, cater, cat tractors. Yeah, I like didn't bulldozers, know that was essentially. Yeah. Benjamin Holt was he okay? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So that was Fine. one of the first times that we saw that we saw um, these used. In reality, um, they were com- they broke down all the time, and Mulholland eventually ordered, I think, like 800 mules to do all the work instead of these 28 tractors. But really? I still thought that counts, right? He tried. Um, he continued to balance his budget with efficiency as he offered bonuses to crews who met certain benchmarks for feet of tunnel dug or pipe laid per day. After five years of grueling work that included 12-hour workdays, rampant disease, countless injuries, and eventually 43 deaths, the Owens River Aqueduct Project was completed in 1913. The conditions were so deplorable that one mess hall displayed a sign above the door that read, Don't make fun of the butter. You'll be old and smell yourself one day. (laughs) Keep in mind that refrigeration was still in its infancy and daily temperatures regularly, regularly reached over 100 degrees. The project was also nearly halted due to issues with selling the bonds that was providing the funds for the project, along okay. with several walkouts. So, of course, so a lot of like a lot of public works projects, um, this was um, funded off of publicly traded bonds. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they almost ran out of money was actually that they were working too quickly. So they okay. had a, a, a deal set with the New York, I guess, brokers. That they would set that they would sell a certain number of these bonds every year, and at their current rate, they were actually going to finish the project like a year and a half early, so they actually weren't going to have the entire budget that they thought they were going to have. They were going to have, you know, whatever their budget was minus a year and a half's worth yeah. of budget. Yeah. So they actually almost because they almost got it done fast is the reason that they almost didn't finish it. Um. So despite all of this, the project fin- actually did finish one year early and right at that $24 million budget. So the reason it's some kind of uh, tomfoolery, I think, with the <laughs> with the logistics. Yeah. But it turns out the city bought back a year's worth of its debt. I'm not a finance person, so I don't know what that means. But somehow that allowed it to free up its cash flow to then use that money somewhere else. I have no idea if anyone listening knows what that means, please let us know. Cause I don't know what that means. I tried to read up on it and it didn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, but at the opening ceremony, as the floodgates opened, Mulholland spread his arms out wide and exclaimed, there it is. Take it. Um, don't know what that means. I think it's, I think he just, people asked for a quote and he got a quote kind of thing. Um, <laughs> He was also later quoted saying, we are truly a people doomed to success. Later, perhaps caught in the euphoria, Mulholland heaped praise on Fred Eaton, even though the men were on speaking terms. Eaton, however, was not present. He did not make the trip down to L.A. for the opening ceremony. Um, (laughs) The completion of the aqueduct is not the completion of our story. In fact, some say it is just the start of the California water wars. Okay. So, personally, one of my favorite parts of the story 
is when Mulholland was so fed up with the speculation and yellow journalism surrounding his aqueduct project that he openly called for the city to conduct an investigation into the rumors of the land syndicate and Mulholland's motivations and potential kickbacks from the project. The rumors climaxed with a book titled The Conspiracy by W.T. Tillman, which detailed the supposed wrongdoings and nefarious intentions of the project. The investigation was a complete farce, and most witnesses called it a complete kangaroo court. Multiple board members resigned in protest of the truly asinine line of questioning towards Mulholland, and in the end, no wrongdoing was uncovered. Uh, this is also a further complete aside, but um, I feel like I needed to, to tie this in to my introduction. Uh, if you have any time, please read about Job Harriman. Harriman headed the Aqueduct Investigation Board uh, after a failed mayoral race that ran on a platform of the Aqueduct Project being an unnecessary waste of taxpayers' dollars. After that failed mayoral race and the failure of the Aqueduct Investigation Board, Harriman started his own socialist utopia 70 miles east of L.A. called Yano Del Rio. <laughs> Dude, what? Yeah. Oh I've heard a lot none of, of this. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of just cool, weird offshoots from the story yeah. that I just loved. Didn't have time to tie them all in, but it's hilarious. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that socialist utopia collapsed uh, because a lot of work they needed to do, like, say, build a reservoir they needed federal permits for, and the federal government just wasn't going to work with them. Oh, um, no. So, yeah, I believe this. I believe the town collapsed after a couple of years. Huh. Um, yeah, but back to our story. Uh, once the waters of the Owens River started to flow down into Los Angeles, people began to flood into the city. Newspapers quickly did an about face on the aqueduct and proclaimed the city's marvelous project as a city as a signal of future prosperity. Many businessmen used this opportunity to buy up land on the outskirts of Los Angeles in speculation of future incorporation. These dealings would later prove incredibly profitable as the city continued to grow into America's largest city by area. As companies like Sunkist, Lockheed, Boeing, Ford, Firestone, and Goodyear opened up production plants there. Sunkist, yeah. number one. So, I mean, probably not a huge surprise, but once you get the ability to hold a ton of people, that's when a ton of people can then get there, right? Kind of, if you mm -hmm. build it, they will come kind of philosophy. I love it. Um, but controversy did not stop once the aqueduct was completed. A Chicago bacteriologist re uh, released a support. Oh, can't talk. However, controversy did not stop once the aqueduct was completed. A Chicago bacteriologist released a report claiming that the aqueduct's water was severely contaminated. Once the local press picked up the story, several members of the original Water Investigation Board follow filed an injunction against the city of Los Angeles over the polluted water. The report essentially stated the city of Los Angeles was deliberately poisoning its re its residents um, through just negligence and not maintaining their own water supply. Mulholland was infuriated and honestly aghast. He asked for the press to try and find a way to find any evidence of a spread of illness in the city as a result of the supposed contamination, but the damage was already done and an investigation was once again launched in response. One witness testified that the source of the contamination was dead livestock that were not removed from the source of the Owens River. Mulholland calmly responded by explaining that the entire aqueduct system was carefully designed with essentially a built-in purification system. 
each reservoir act as a settling chamber while the bumpy surface of the open air aqueducts churned the water to oxidize it. Lastly, the system's length in multiple reservoirs meant that one drop of water took about three years to reach the city. The city wanted, in response, the bacteriologists, uh, the bacteriology report's author uh, to, of course, respond to Mulholland's test. The researcher repeatedly made excuses as to why she couldn't appear, but did say she could appear for a $1,000 fee. Um, <laughs> she later appeared after a subpoena by the city of Los Angeles. And once she did arrive, uh, her testimony was unconvincing. She admitted that she wrote the report, but said it was published without her consent. The investigation board dropped the case. There is still mystery to this day surrounding the bacteriologist's report as far as why it was published. Was it some sort of bribery stunt? Um, none of the sources I found touched on that a lot. Um, hmm. But interesting to say the least. Yeah. Um, yeah. But believe it or not, by 1920, so fast forwarding um, about a decade now, uh, but a little less than a decade. Um, so by 1920, Los Angeles was continuing to grow, and the city was once again fearful that it would need even more water. And just like before, Mulholland was asked to solve the problem. Mulholland knew exactly where to build the new reservoir, but wasn't thrilled about who owned the site, Mr. Fred Eaton, of course. Just like before, Mulholland offered fair market price for the property, but Eaton said he wouldn't accept anything less than $1 million, or $14 million in today's dollars. Mulholland was willing to go without Eaton's parcel once again. Around this time in the 1920s, so much water was being diverted from the Owens River Valley that agriculture was nearly impossible, and by 1926, the saline Owens Lake was completely dry. The increased diversion of water, coupled with more L.A. water agents snooping around to buy even more property, left the residents of Inyo County to, report, to resort to violence. Armed citizens began seizing power stations and destroying large parcels, stretches of the aqueduct. If they couldn't use the water, neither could Los Angeles, was their, uh, yeah, was their thought. This conflict went on for three years, which included, again, armed seizing of city property, dynamite used to blow up stretches of the aqueduct, but just when the conflict was reaching its climax, Inyo County banks collapsed as auditors received a tip that the family running Inyo County's banks was embezzling funds. The resulting collapse of the local economy brought an end to the violence. And if you're wondering, yes, Los Angeles were the ones that tipped the auditors to investigate Inyo County banks. Uh -uh. Yes. There was actually some nefarious uh, embezzling going on there. The family that was so maybe nefarious is the right word. Well-intentioned embezzling. Um, so the family running the banks was a hundred percent cooking the books, but they were trying to keep all the money in the town to support its own economy. Um, but of course, embezzlement is still embezzlement. Um, so with that, of course, um, a lot of the residents, a lot of the residents had to leave because the economy, local economy was completely shot. Um, but we're actually really reaching the conclusion of our, of our water wars kind of summary here. And unfortunately this last chapter of the California water wars is a sad one for William Mulholland. 
With the Inyo County conflict over, Mulholland once again tried to negotiate with Fred Eaton to purchase his property, and once again, the two were unable to come to an agreement. As an alternative, the city of L.A. planned to conduct two smaller dams, the Mulholland Reservoir and the St. Francis Dam. The dams were completed by 1926 and immediately increased L.A.'s water storage. However, in the middle of the night, on March 12, 1928, the St. Francis Dam suffered a catastrophic failure and collapsed, killing 431 people. To this day, the collapse is the second largest loss of life in California's history behind the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and accompanying fire. Being the designer and project manager of the St. Francis Dam, Mulholland, now 73 years old, took full responsibility and immediately tendered his resignation, but his resignation wasn't accepted by the water board. Despite this tragedy, the water board was willing to stay loyal. Mulholland, however, would stand trial in a coroner's court for manslaughter and criminal neglect, with the dam's design being the focal point of the prosecutor's case, and the prosecutor went so far as to call the rest of Mulholland's dams into question. In case you're wondering what a coroner's court is, it's kind of like a lead-in to whether or not there actually can be a criminal, there is enough evidence to have a criminal trial so Mulholland actually didn't get any legal representation he was more just used as like a a, a witness if that is a, so he did testify but there wasn't mm -hmm. he didn't have any defense of his own to make if that makes sense it was more the city trying to build a case against him if that makes sense yeah so after teams of engineers hydrologists and geologists gave their testimony it was found that the geology of the dam site was incompatible with a large dam the substrate, called schist, is a flaky, metamorphic rock that is notoriously unstable and can even completely dissolve when exposed to moisture. This would allow water to accumulate beneath the dam and threaten the integrity of the structure. This can be combated by installing drain pipes, but Mulholland opted not to install drain pipes. Mulholland argued the opposite, that the sheer weight of the dam would compress the schist and prevent from flaking or dissolving. In reality, the outlook was bleak and Mulholland's fate was sealed. He wholeheartedly accepted any and all responsibility. Interestingly, though, the Los Angeles Water Board, the people so loyal to Mulholland, were working to dig up evidence to help him. The Water Board was suspicious of sabotage. After all, it wouldn't be the first time part of the aqueduct was tampered with. The Water Board found two interesting pieces of evidence. One being cases of dynamite that were being stored near the St. Francis Dam as crews uh, were starting to level the landscape for roads. And the fact that an independent inspection firm concluded that the cause of the dam's failure had been an explosion. The inspection mm -hmm. firm was willing to testify in court. Furthermore, hundreds of fish with ruptured lungs and organs were found on top of the remaining structure. The water board argued that they must have been blown up on top of the structure with the concussive blast rupturing their organs, something a simple failure couldn't do. However, the water board president opted to allow the city to buy their way out of the problem rather than introduce controversy to a seemingly straightforward case. Also keep in mind that, like I said, this isn't a criminal trial, so it's not like someone could have brought this evidence to Mulholland's lawyer in his defense someone would have needed to bring this evidence to the prosecutor 
and the prosecutor would have been willing to forfeit this evidence, which of course they wouldn't. Um, but in reality, I think they like the prosecutor, there were reports that the prosecutor just didn't like Mulholland for whatever reason. So he, and I think it was also to be fair, it was really simple to just blame it on Mulholland to just have like, Hey, it's his fault. He designed it. He runs this kind of monopoly in the, yeah. in the water company. Um, so he's our fall guy. Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. In their ruling, there was actually a jury. Um, the jury did acknowledge that the area's geology was partly to blame for the Dale's failure, but ultimately concluded that Mulholland's sole control over the project meant that he would be left with the blame. Funny enough, the jury also acknowledged the rumors of sabotage circulating through the press, because of course the press were circulating it, but were quick to dismiss those claims. However, despite all of this, the coroner's jury felt that it would be unreasonable to pursue any criminal trials against Mulholland, but the public had its scapegoat, which is all it really needed. Mulholland immediately resigned from the water company and lived out the rest of his life at his home being cared by his daughter, with the guilt of the San Francis Dam torturing him. The Mulholland Reservoir was immediately renamed the Hollywood Dam, and Mulholland passed away in his sleep at the age of 79. Fred Eaton, meanwhile, had a similarly sad end to his life. He continued to reject any and all offers from the city with increasingly outlandish demands. His wife eventually took the property out from underneath him with claims that her husband was incompetent and unfit to maintain the property and later divorced him. Eaton fought the claims, which bankrupted the couple and forced Eaton to default on the property. The city of Los Angeles would purchase the property and Eaton wouldn't see a penny of the transaction. Ellie would go on to build the dam that Mulholland always envisioned, and Fred Eaton later died at the age of 78. Thus brings the end to the origins of the California Water Wars. The origins. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts? That was fantastic. (laughs) I've never heard any of this. Well, I did hear about the the dam break. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Um, I think yeah, I think there's a reason that engineering schools exist. <laughs> yeah, there was um my favorite murder. I think did a podcast about that. The fall what did of you the say? Dams. Pod- uh, my favorite murderer. Have you ever heard that? It's like the murder podcast. They um they I have, did. I have heard of it. The um, could you say the name again of the the, the dam? Uh, Saint Francis Dam. Saint Francis, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they they did it at like the perspective of like the victims, I guess. So like yeah, mm-hmm. so it was yeah. like um, so there's actually, sorry, you go, go ahead, you okay. Go. So there's a there's a great podcast called American History Tellers mm-hmm. that does the same thing. They take they take this from the perspective of the victims, and their storytelling is fantastic. I'm a huge history buff, uh, so I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was it's really harrowing hearing it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but real quick, I want to cite my sources. Um, so there were a couple of books that I skimmed really quickly in online articles. So one was the Politics of California Water, Owens Valley, and the Los Angeles Aqueduct. Um, that was written by William L. Carl in 1976. I also consulted AmericanHeritage.com. They have a um, an article titled The Water War. Uh, there's also a book written by Mark Reisner in 1986 titled Cadillac Desert. And Robert A. Souder's book called The Last Frontier, which was published in 1994. All right. Yeah. Oh, cool. 
Mm -hmm. So, and again, I could have done probably a lot more delving into everything that has happened after that and until today. I was afraid that was going to run a little long. So maybe the next podcast I'll do everything that happened after that. I don't think I'll have the same storytelling approach because I'm not sure there's anything quite as enthralling as Mulholland's story. Mulholland. Um, yeah. yeah, but it really comes full full kind of circle where you have this man like literally rags to riches mm -hmm. on top of the world. He's literally in charge of the biggest city, one of the biggest cities in the country's water. Um, and then it all just kind of comes out from underneath him with the asterisk that was it his fault? Was it sabotage? So I think that's another interesting, interesting part was it's like, yeah. Yeah, on paper again, open and shut case, but there's always that little like, uh, was it? Yeah, <laughs> interesting. But yeah. yeah, it's like, could that have been done with a different individual? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like a, a necessary person in that situation. Yeah. Like, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and I I think that's something that's something on a couple of these books uh, brought up was just that a lot of it is Mulholland's personality and just his like headstrongness was mm -hmm. that yeah he may have exaggerated that la needed so much more water just so he could get this done but yeah. in the end la was going to need this water mm -hmm. right um but i mean we could probably have a whole separate discussion on the ethics of this i mean on paper they didn't do anything wrong all of the land dealings were 100 percent legal um like again if you want to talk about the ethics and morality of it right they weren't completely forthright into the motives of yeah. why they why eaton was purchasing that land because he said or... he was going um he wanted the land for farming mm -hmm. yeah, yeah he told all the farmers that he wanted their parcel and he actually so whenever he bought the land if they had a herd he would buy the land and the herd to kind of help his story oh. so he was like oh yeah like if you if i could buy your herd off you it'll help it'll be a good it'll be kind of a good jump start for me wow um but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And then of course now, you know, LA's I think since then LA built another aqueduct that's actually running just alongside Mulholland's that goes up to I think Mono Lake. I'm going a little beyond my research now. Okay. Um and if I'm not mistaken, they're also drawing water from the Hoover Dam, I think. I'm not sure about Hoover. Yeah, I mean, it could. Definitely, I know in that area. Well, more so in the Bay Area, they they have like a desalination plant that they're looking at too. I guess that's yeah, different on. than LA. Sorry, everyone in California, I'm not um, privy to the area. <laughs> yeah. Um... I don't know if they built the salination plant yet or not. I think they're still like looking at doing that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so they do get water from the Colorado River. Okay. Um, so many people from Colorado. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Or maybe theirs is um, Lake Mead. Theirs might be Lake Mead. Well, Lake Mead is Colorado River. Yeah. Well, I'm so I, I said Hoover Dam. Sorry. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well. Yeah. Or wait. That, yeah. Isn't that, that, is, isn't that, that is Hoover? Yeah. Dam. I'll say. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That was right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're fine. <laughs> There's a lot of them the there, dam. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the dam's different than the lake. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that city requires a lot of water. It's got a ton of people. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot that goes into the story. But I yeah. really enjoyed it. I hope you did, and I hope our listeners that was great. did too. So yeah, huh. yeah. Well, cool, man. All right. Uh, real quick, if anyone wants to, I think this is one of the few stories 
um, that is actually much more story based. Um, I'll try to put this up on the website. I'm not sure how much of an easy read it'll be, but I'll do my best. But if you're interested in in any more kind of ecology or freshwater uh, uh, articles to read, feel free to look around our website, which is fishwaterandtravel.com. We are also present on all the social media sites, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and a YouTube channel as well. So feel free also, we have a growing back catalog of other podcasts, so feel free to go back and listen to some of those. So, all right, see you next all time. Right. See you, Matt. Thank you.